Let's pray together. Father, we lay our hearts bare before you this morning. As we approach your word together, Lord, we pray that you would focus our minds upon Jesus. Help us to strive to understand and apply your scriptures to our hearts and lives without hesitation, excuse, or reservation. Please remove all distractions and cares of the world from our thoughts and cause this time to work in us. Grant to us, Lord, that we would rest in the finished work of Christ today. Help us not to think of the Scriptures as merely a guidebook for things that we must do, but as a spotlight upon what Jesus has done for us. Help us to see Him as simultaneously glorious and humble, having come down to us in human flesh, embracing weakness and suffering that we might be brought to You in glory. We pray these things not for our church only, but for the church around the world today. We pray for our fellow believers who are suffering persecution, meeting in secret to worship the King of all creation. Give them strength and endurance, Lord, and increase their courage and boldness to share the gospel with those around them, even those who are hostile toward it. We pray that when we face persecution here in our lives, that you would do the same for us. We pray for the church in Ukraine today, Lord that they would remain steadfast in the face of war, that they would continue to pursue Jesus even as they are facing death. We also pray for the church in Russia, Father, that they would speak boldly against injustice and that your word may take root in that nation. We pray, Father, that those who are unjust and wicked would be removed from office, that they would have their power taken from them, that their ability to harm others with their sin would be greatly restricted or even eliminated. We know that these things are possible because of your power, Lord. Nothing is too hard for you. These things are small in comparison to raising dead hearts to life and saving sinners through the death and resurrection of Christ. That, Father, is a miracle, and you are a God who still works miracles today. Please bless your people and bless this time. In Christ's matchless, holy name we pray. Amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Today we are going to start a short series through the book of Jonah. We're going to be in Jonah for four Sundays, so through the month of March. We don't have a lot of information about the book of Jonah outside of its narrative. And further, Jonah himself is someone that we don't know a whole lot about in terms of personal details. Sometimes in the Bible we get a lot of information about people and sometimes we get very little. What we know about Jonah is contained within this book and one mention in 2 Kings 14.25 which says, He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. That's literally everything we have about Jonah outside of the book that we're reading. And we don't know if Jonah spoke that word before these events or after these events. We know that Jonah was alive during the reign of Jeroboam II, but we don't know 
if he was alive before that reign, if he outlived Jeroboam, if he died during that reign, we know virtually nothing. We also don't know exactly when the events described in the book of Jonah take place, who wrote the book, or when it was written. Jonah himself may have written it, someone else may have written it, we do not know. I tell you all this so that we can focus on what matters. The events described here. It's easy to get caught up on some of those background details, but when those details are scarce, it shouldn't cause us to question the truth of Scripture. We have exactly the information that the Lord intends for us to have. And that should be sufficient for us as believers. And as we focus on what takes place in these four chapters, my hope is to showcase the underlying current of the book of Jonah, which is the grace of God. And today we're going to look at the first 16 verses of Jonah, and we're going to see two different responses to the will and the work of the Lord. And what we'll see is that it's not always the one who seems to be a part of God's people that responds rightly to the things of God. So let's look together at Jonah chapter 1, <coughs> excuse me, beginning with the first two verses, where we'll see the fleeing prophet. If you grabbed one of our bulletins or one of our listening guides on your way in, uh, you'll notice that there are four blanks for four different points. And as I go, I will make sure that I, I highlight what those points are. And so that's our first one, the fleeing prophet. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, excuse me, that's supposed to be through verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The book opens by telling us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is the life of a prophet waiting for God to speak and tell them where to go, what to do, what to say. Sometimes God tells prophets to go before the king of Israel and tell them a story about a man who stole his neighbor's lamb. Sometimes the Lord tells prophets to lay on their side for a year, cooking food over dung and playing with army toys in the dirt. And sometimes the Lord tells a prophet to arise and go to a far-off land to go and call on them to repent. And there is an expectation of obedience from the prophet because they are the one that God is speaking directly to. When you, when you read in the Scriptures... You don't see the Lord speaking directly to the kings. You don't see the Lord speaking directly to the priests. You see the Lord speaking directly to the prophets. And so there is an expectation because they are hearing the voice, the command of God, direct from God himself. There's an expectation of obedience. It's one thing for me to stand before you and say, thus says the Lord, 
There is some levels removed between you and God in those commands. It's a whole other thing to be sitting in your recliner and have the Lord speak directly to you and say, go do this. There's an expectation of obedience. And he tells Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Nineveh is a major city in the Assyrian Empire. At one point later in their reign in that empire, uh, Nineveh was actually the capital city. And because we don't know the timing of these events, it could have been the capital city at this point. It could have just been a major city at this point. But that's where Jonah is commanded to go. And Nineveh, the Assyrians, were known for their fearsome army. They were skillful with chariots and siege warfare. They had impressive weaponry. They had things like battering rams and those sorts of things. They were very skilled at warfare. They were good at killing people. In fact, they were known for their brutality. They were a society of warriors. Where only the strongest and often the most sadistic survived. There's stories about how Nineveh would pile up the skulls of dead enemies outside of the gates so that anybody who passed by would go, we don't want to mess with those guys. Look at all those dudes they've killed. Look at all those skulls. We're going to stay away from those people. And God calls Jonah to go into this foreign city filled with brutal people and call out against it. And when he says call out against it, here's what he's saying. He's not saying go to Nineveh and go, hey guys, um, listen, uh, maybe, maybe you ought to rethink how you're living. Maybe you ought to reconsider how, how you're conducting yourselves. No, he is telling Jonah, go to this place and tell these people, repent or the Lord is going to destroy you. He is supposed to go and proclaim that the judgment of God is fast approaching for them. Why? Because their evil has come up before the Lord. Their evil has come up before the Lord. But Jonah does not obey. He does not say, yes, Lord, and get up and go to Nineveh. The Bible tells us that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, when I was young, the way that this story was presented to me, and perhaps it was presented this way to you as well, was that Jonah did this because he was afraid. I just laid out for you what we know about the city of Nineveh, about the Assyrian people, how they were brutal and sadistic, and they were, they were warmongers, and they were violent, and all these things. And it makes sense to think, well, I wouldn't want to go to a city that has piles of dead guys' skulls outside their gates and say, you guys better straighten up or God's going to strike you down because you know how they're going to react to that, right? They're going to kill me too. Done. It makes perfect sense. Because not only was Jonah going there to call them to repent, but the very nature of what he was going to say to them was also going to say, by the way, your gods ain't God. 
So not only was he going to call them to repent, to tell them that they were wicked and evil, he was also going there to say, everything about your society, everything about your way of life, everything about what you believe is wrong. And I don't know about y'all, but in my experience, people don't tend to react positively to being told that everything they think and believe is wrong. And when that person, those people that you're telling that to, are unstable and violent people, can be a little bit frightening. But as we're going to see as we go through the book of Jonah, Jonah was not afraid of the Ninevites. This was not a decision made in fear. This was not Jonah going, I don't want to die, God, and running away because he was scared. And I don't, want to, I don't want to spoil the ending. But Jonah is not a good person. He is not a righteous man. Our first clue of this comes in verse 3, where it tells us that Jonah was trying to flee the presence of the Lord. Right? Jonah rose in verse 3 to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Listen. <clears throat> Jonah has forgotten the Scriptures. He's a prophet of God who doesn't know what the Word of God says. Psalm 139.7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If Jonah knew the Word of God, he would know that this was a futile endeavor. God is just as much God in Tarshish as He is in Israel, as He is in Nineveh, as He is in all the corners of the earth. There is nowhere that you can go where you are outside of the presence of God. There is no rock you can hide under. There's no pond you can sink to the bottom of. There is no crevasse that you can get all the way in the bottom and, and tuck yourself under where you can be out of the sight and presence of the Lord. It's impossible. And not only that, not only do we see Jonah trying to flee from the presence of the Lord in a way that is literally impossible, but we also see some language being used that helps us to see that Jonah is really just being rebellious. In verse 2, right, we see the language being used that their evil has come up before God. So there's a directional aspect there where we see God is up, right? We see God is up and it goes up before the Lord. But what does Jonah do? He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. Twice we see Jonah going directionally opposed to God. God is up and Jonah is actively going down. It's not just about fleeing the presence of the Lord. It is about direct disobedience of God's will, of God's command. To go to God is to go up and Jonah is actively going down. He is going away from what God has commanded him to do. He's trying to get to a place called Tarshish, which is opposite of Nineveh in terms of direction. Nineveh is to the east. Tarshish is to the west. So Jonah's not like making a pit stop along the way. He is literally saying, you want me to go this way? Okay, I'm going to go this way. You're up. I'm going to go down. He is doing everything in his power to avoid obeying the word and the will of God. Next we see in verses 4 through 6, we see the Lord's response the Lord's response. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, 
And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the, th the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So we see Jonah in the first three verses directly defying the command of God. And now we see God responding. God is not going to just let Jonah do what he chooses. He's not going to say, okay, you can disobey me. That's all right. I'll allow it. No. The Lord hurls a great wind upon the sea. Make no mistake, this is God's doing. Jonah did not just happen into a bad storm. It's not a coincidence. Spoiler, those don't exist. We see God actively doing this, and I love the language that is used there. I love that. He hurls it. It is meant to convey a sense of God's frustration and indignation at the actions of Jonah. This is an angry word. He is hurling this storm upon the sea. God is upset. He is frustrated. He is angry that Jonah is actively defying his will. He hurls a storm upon the sea. And the text tells us, that the mariners were afraid. This is meant to convey the severity of this storm. These are men who sailed these seas all the time. These were men who knew storms. These were men who had experienced severe weather at sea. And these men were terrified of this storm. The Bible says it was so severe that it began to literally break the ship apart. They were all convinced we are going to die here tonight. This is it for us. We're all going to die. And so in desperation, they are all praying to their various gods in the hopes that surely one of them will save them from their destruction. These guys are trying literally everything they can think of. Every possible thing. You pray to this God, I'll pray to this God. We're all praying to different gods. Somebody please come and help us. Then... They try to lighten the ship as much as possible, which would put the ship higher above the waterline, right? When the seas are, are violent and, and rocking the boat side to side, the last thing you want to do is take on water. So they start throwing stuff overboard, hoping that maybe we'll get high enough that the seas won't encroach into the boat and we won't sink. And while all this is happening, we see that Jonah had again gone down into the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. We keep seeing the Word of God showing us that Jonah is consistently going against the direction of God's will. And here he is, asleep. And so the captain bursts into this area where Jonah is sleeping, and he shouts at him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Get up! It's a way of saying, what's the matter with you? Are you crazy? We're dying. How can you sleep at a time like this? Jonah does not even think to pray. He has to be called to prayer by this pagan ship captain. This pagan man comes in and says, pray to your God. Maybe he'll save us. But Jonah does not pray. Jonah remains quiet in the face 
of the Lord's wrath. The scriptures don't tell us that Jonah responds like the rest of the sailors do. Scriptures don't tell us that he begins to pray and ask God to spare him. He is still actively rebelling against the word and the will of God. That leads us into verses 7 through 10 where we see the forced confession. The forced confession. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. The men come to the conclusion that this surely is being caused by some God's displeasure with someone on this boat. Remember, they're pagans, very superstitious. So they're, they're, they're cycling through everything they can think of. What can we do? And they think one of us has had, had to have made some God mad. That's what's happening here. And so they decide to cast lots. There's different ways that this was done. Could be small rocks with symbols on them. Could be drawing straws. We don't really know exactly how they cast lots. We just know that they did, and the lot fell on Jonah. Again, not coincidence, not happenstance, not random. The direct action of God to indicate to Jonah and to these other men, it's his fault. It's his fault. The the Lord is making it abundantly clear that this is all because of Jonah. So they begin to question him to try to figure out what's going on. Why, why is this happening? What have you done? What, who are you? Who are you even? Where are you coming? They're, they're just asking him all these questions. What's happening? Why, are you do- why is this happening to us? And Jonah's answer is very interesting. First, he says to them, I'm a Hebrew. He identifies himself using a cultural identifier used by Gentiles, not by Jews. The Jews would have said, I'm a Jew. They would have said, I'm, I'm of Jacob, something of that nature. I'm a child of Abraham. But he identifies himself the way the Gentiles would. He says, I'm a Hebrew. And then he says, I fear the Lord. Does he really? Does he really fear the Lord? Would someone who fears the Lord directly defy his command that was given directly to him? Would someone who fears the Lord say to the God of all creation, no, absolutely not. This seems more like a ritualistic statement by Jonah rather than a true recognition of the Lord's power. This is something you're just supposed to say, right? Because what are the Israelites commanded to do? Fear the Lord. And so Jonah is trying to convince God and even himself, I fear the Lord. And then he says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. He gives these pagan sailors a statement about God's place among the so-called gods. He says to them, the God that I serve is greater than all of your so-called false gods. The God that I serve is the real one true God. 
He is the ruler of heaven. He gives the Lord a title that is an indication that there is no one higher than him. Then he says, who made the sea and the dry land. It's a statement indicating that it is God who is in control of all things by virtue of being the one who created them. In other words, this storm is God's doing, and Jonah knows it. He knows it. God, the creator of all things, is in sovereign control of all things. And by Jonah saying, God is is the God of the sea and the dry land. He made the sea and the dry land. He is saying everything that is happening right now is his doing. And the pagans respond rightly to Jonah's confession in a way that Jonah has not done. Remember, Jonah was not afraid. He's been asleep. Jonah has not been obedient. Jonah has not been praying. He just matter-of-factly tells these guys, yeah, this is my fault. God told me to do something. I don't want to do it. And now here we are. And the pagans respond in verse 10 by being exceedingly afraid and saying to him, what is this that you have done? Even pagans knew that Jonah was being an idiot. Even pagans knew that what he is doing is absolutely 100% wrong. If these things that you are saying about your God are true, if he is the God of heaven, if he is the one who made the sea and the dry land, why on earth would you defy him? That's insanity. That's absolute insanity. They respond rightly to what God is doing. Jonah does not. And we see this more fully fleshed out in verses 11 through 16 where we see the pagan repentance. The pagan repentance. Starting in verse 11, it says, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. In response to Jonah's confession, the men say, what should we do to you? How do we fix this? What do we need to do? The men want to find a way to work out the situation, how to appease God in a way that doesn't make him more angry. And Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Notice that it uses the same word that it used for the Lord hurling the storm onto the sea. Hurl me into the sea. Now listen. You might be tempted to read that and go, wow, what a sacrificial thing for Jonah to say. What an incredibly selfless thing for him to say, just just throw me overboard, guys. Just throw me overboard and everything will be okay. Don't, Don't miss what's happening here. 
Because in saying this, what Jonah is actually saying is, I would rather die than obey God. That's what he's saying. He just wants to die. He so badly does not want to go to Nineveh. He so badly does not want to obey God that he literally is willing to drown in the sea so that he doesn't have to do what God commands. Because notice, notice what Jonah doesn't say. Jonah doesn't say, well, I could repent. I could repent and turn around and do what God said and the storm would go away. That would be selfless for him to go, okay, God, okay, I get it. I'm, all right, all right, all right, fine. No, he wants these men to murder him. He wants these innocent men to pick him up and throw him in the sea to die. And the men all say, no, we're not doing that. We're not going to kill you. Your God is just going to get angrier at us. That's not going to fix the problem. Then we're all murderers. And so they start to try to row as hard as they can to try to get back to shore. But the Bible tells us the storm gets more and more severe. More and more severe. No matter how hard they try to escape what God is doing, they cannot because God is actively working against them. Listen, you need to understand that in those moments where God is disciplining you, where God is working upon you to convict you of sin, there is only one escape. It's not like you're in the ocean and you're caught in the undertow and you're just slowly drifting out and all you got to do is swim sideways. No, that is not how this works. There is only one way out, and that is repentance. And that's the one thing that Jonah does not do. And so they are trying and trying and trying to get to dry land and they cannot do it. The Lord is not allowing it. It's not just that they, can't, they don't have the power. It's that God is actively preventing it. And so at that point, they're out of options. And in verse 14, it says, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish, for this man's life, and lay not on us the innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. The men basically say, look, God, we, this guy won't repent. He won't do what he needs to do. Jonah also doesn't just throw himself overboard. You notice that, right? He doesn't just take his own life. Well, that would be wrong. I got to make these guys kill me instead. And make sure you understand, like, we know what happens next. We know that a great fish comes and swallows him. Jonah didn't know that. Jonah had no idea that the Lord was going to save him. He thinks he's going to die in doing this. And so they pray and they ask God, please don't hold us to account for this. This is not our fault. And then they throw him overboard to certain death. And just like that, the sea stops. Just like that, all of it is gone. And the men, instead of going, whew, glad that's over, and sailing on to their destination, the Bible tells us that the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to him and made vows. These men repent and believe. In that moment, they say, Lord, we can see that you are the one true God. And we are devoting ourselves to you. It has been proven to us that this is true. 
How do you respond to the will and power of God? Jonah tried to flee, then wanted to die, all to escape God's will and God's power. But the pagan sailors, upon being presented with the reality of the one true God, immediately responded with repentance and devotion. It is striking how the man who was a part of the people of God, the man who was a literal prophet, was so willing to defy God while ignoring the magnitude of his power and the inescapable nature of his presence. While the pagans were deathly afraid of angering this God, who clearly was able to destroy them. We need to be mindful of these things. We need to recognize that just, that, just, just because we believe we are a part of the in crowd, just because we think we are part of the right people, that doesn't make us a part of the people. We also see shadows of Christ in the story of Jonah. You probably picked up on them. Probably picked up on them. One especially. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm, and the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? We see parallels here. We see a frightening storm. We see someone sleeping. We see that sleeping person woken up by panicked people, sure that they are going to die. But where Jonah refuses to repent and obey God, Jesus, our perfect Savior, calms the storm. In His power, He does what is necessary to save His people. Jesus always does what is necessary to save His people. Jonah could not have cared less about those pagan sailors. He did not care if they lived or they died. Jesus cares about us. We also see a shadow in, in the idea of going into hostile territory to tell of God's judgment and calling people to repent. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, where Jonah was willing to sacrifice himself to avoid doing the will of God, Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself for the will of God. Where Jonah did not care if the people in the boat with him lived or died, Jesus came and died to save us from certain death. We see these shadows of Christ doing what we cannot. We see these shadows of Jesus fulfilling where men have failed. And make no mistake, Jonah is a failure. Christ never fails. 
the way that we can understand this text today is realizing that we are all Jonah. We are all Jonah. We are all fleeing from the truth of God. And that it, it is only in Jesus Christ that we are set free from that. And perhaps today you are still fleeing from God's truth. Perhaps today you are still running away from the will of God. I would, I would implore you to turn in repentance like the sailors, that the Lord would relent of his wrath upon you. Or, as I mentioned before, maybe you are trusting in your supposed status as a part of God's people. Maybe it's, maybe it's your family line. Maybe it's that you got wet in that tank back there. Maybe it's because you walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. Maybe it's because you've been going to church your whole life. Maybe it's because you are a quote-unquote good person. You, you have strict adherence to the moral commands of the Bible. This is not enough. It's not enough. Paul in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. We, our, our life must be found in Christ. We must be known by Him in order to be able to rest in the promised life of God. If we are not known by Jesus, all of our good personness is worthless because you're not a good person. Only Christ is a good person. Jesus Himself in Matthew 7 Verses 21 through 23 says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus himself says that there are going to be those who are going to stand before him and point to the things that they have done for him and for his kingdom, supposedly, and say, this is my proof, Jesus. And Jesus says, but I don't know you. None of that is meaningful if I don't know you. Being known by Jesus is the only thing that matters when you stand before him in judgment. And so today, whether... You are not a believer, whether you are a new believer, whether you've been here for 70 years. My message to you is the same. Repent of where you flee from the will of God. Turn and obey. Don't obey because it's going to grant you favor from God, but obey because you love the Lord. And if you can't do that if you don't know if you can be if you're known by jesus if you don't know maybe you maybe you're recognizing this morning all i have ever done is say all the right words maybe all i've ever done is just answer the questions in the right way but i don't know jesus today is the day that you can know him today is the day that i would be glad to sit with you and talk with you and share with you from the word of god how you too can be known by jesus christ how you too can have life with him in him forever. Don't let this moment pass by without surrendering your life to him. In just a moment, Brother Scott's going to come. We're going to sing together. And during that time, I'll be down front. I'm available to talk with you, to pray with you, to give you a hug if that's all you need.
I love you. And my heart is for you. And my desire is for you to know Christ the way that the Bible calls us to. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for the opportunity we've had today to look at it together, to study it together. Lord, I pray that you would use it in the hearts and the minds of your people. I pray, Father, that if any are here today who don't know Christ, that they would be saved today, that you would grant them new life according to your spirit today. Father, don't allow us to rest on our own morality. Don't allow us to rest on our church membership. Don't allow us to rest on our family legacy, Lord. Allow us to rest only in Christ. And if there are any here who cannot say that they are resting in Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would make them restless until they come and seek to know him for themselves. Father, please use this time to sanctify your people. In Jesus' name, amen.